Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Ahoy, listeners! We extend permission for you to come aboard the Feelin' Film Podcast with us for a journey into a conversation about one of Steven Spielberg's most underrated pictures. I'm Aaron, one of your hosts, and with me, embarking on this great adventure, is my trusty dog, Snowy. I, oh, I mean, I guess my co-host and sidekick, Patch, will do. That, that was a rough intro, so I'm gonna say ahoy. Did you say rough? (laughs) I did say rough. (laughs) Dog pun for the win. Well, in this episode, we're going to be discussing the 2011 3D computer animated action adventure film, The Adventures of Tintin, based on the serial comic strip of the same name by Belgian cartoonist Herge, Herg, Erge, I don't know. Erge, let's just call him Erge. <laughs> Patrick, this film has some big name involvement for how seemingly unremembered it is. Uh, it was produced and directed by Spielberg. Co-produced by Peter Jackson and Kathleen Kennedy. What? Written by Stephen Moffat of Doctor Who and Sherlock fame. Also written by Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish, two British directors with solid comedy chops. My guess is that Spielberg brought in Moffat, Wright, and Cornish to give Tintin a British sensibility, which I think is pretty fantastic, and it really shows in the writing. And speaking of Brits, Wright's buddies Simon Pegg and Nick Frost do the voice work for the comedic Scotland Yard inspectors Thompson and Thompson. But anyway, we should probably get into our episode proper. So here's your spoiler warning, listeners. We are going to spoil the show. That's what a spoiler warning is for, is to warn you that that's what we're going to do. So we're going to do that right now after this very slow transition into me saying, oh, you should watch this movie. It's on Netflix. Patrick, one word takeaways. What was your one word takeaway? And and also, have you seen this movie before? Answer that question. This is a very very rough go for me. I don't know what's going on, but we're uh, we're gonna just keep going with it. So there, figure it out, fix it for me. Whoa, you've just given me the keys to the kingdom here to fix the podcast. This is something I I don't do much. This is the first time watch for me. One of probably many that we will be covering in the future, seeing as the state we're in as a country in the in the world, but. I I watched this for the first time uh, with my son, which was an interesting experience. I think the only ex- really previous experience that he's had with this kind of style has been the Polar Express. And so I, I've gotten into the habit of when I expose him to a new movie, he says, can I see the thing on, on YouTube? Like he knows what trailers are based off of that. So I have to kind of prep him by saying, okay, let me show you the trailer and whatever, but my one word takeaway was actually, I think, the first one word takeaway that I hyphenated or that was hyphenated. I've usually just been truly one word, but my word was nonstop. This was an adventure story through and through. I absolutely love how we just get dropped right into the middle of things. We get backstory as the movie goes on and we're told things through non voiceover type narrative, which I tend to enjoy more so than voiceover because voiceover just has to be done a certain way for me to really enjoy that. But this was a a movie that I felt like didn't have a lot of places to breathe. And that was good for me because it kept you in the moment. One thing happens and then 
something happens to trigger that one thing. And then that second thing triggers something else. And it's just go, 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 go. And then the moments that quiet you down give you a little bit more information so that you can basically take that narrative breath and then move forward. And so for me, this really was one of what I hoped would be many adventures of 1010 after I finished watching it. Well, good. I'm so glad to hear that you enjoyed it and you want more. There will be a question about that later, so you may have to answer that again. Boy, I'm I'm off my game. I don't know what's going on with me today. Hopefully, we I can like reel it in here or something. But one more takeaways, right? So you need mine now. I think that's how this show's supposed to go. That's well, how my, it works. <laughs> I'm just trying to act out my one word takeaway, Patrick. That's all I'm doing here, and it is lively with very little time to slow down, as you mentioned nonstop and get dramatic. I think that this is a movie that starts fast and just never lets up. It is bright. It is exciting. And it is always progressing from place to place and clue to clue. I think that the way the narrative moves is very suited to its roots um, as both an animated film in general, other than live action, and also the fact that it is very, very short. I think both of those really give it the feeling of reading a comic strip where the quest is revealed quickly and problems are resolved after clearing a few hurdles and getting through some hijinks and you're just left with another adventure to pursue right after that. And it just feels so engaging to me, never overly dramatic. And I I really enjoyed it in this format, in this way. So it felt like it was kind of different than other movies that have a similar structure to them, but maybe are focused on older characters with a little bit different kinds of stakes. Yeah. And when it comes to animated movies, something that I'm really trying to appreciate more is an animated movie that doesn't have to cater to the lowest common denominator of entertainment or humor. I'm fine with fart jokes here and there. I'm fine with slapstick. And Pixar has given us a little bit of that spoiled nature of being able to give us smart, animated, humorous movies that don't have to be all just hilarious potty jokes all the time. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's a place for those, just like there's a place for Raunch comedies, even though I don't like them, there's a place for slapstick, there's a place for drama, there's a place for all these different types of movies. And so a movie like Tintin really allows for the ability to have really great writing, really great animation, really great storytelling overall to keep the audience engaged. So it really does become a wide audience target. It's not just for kids. It's not just for adults. In fact, um, watching it, I questioned, hey, is this all for kids or is this really meant for adults? And I found that it had a really nice balance of both. Well, good, because I was about to ask you about that as we start into this conversation. You know, he is, I think, clearly meant to be a teenager. Tim Tim, that is. But his age is never specifically revealed in the movie itself. But he lives alone. He owns a gun. And he's definitely more mature than he looks. He's also not a detective or a professor or the heir to a fortune. 
or a professional treasure hunter. He's a journalist. I found that pretty intriguing and unique uh, for his character and very fitting, honestly. And I was wondering what you thought about this being the number one question that comes to my mind anytime I watch a story that is an adventure where we're hunting down treasure. How does a serial adventure like this with a younger protagonist differ from those that we're used to, like an Indiana Jones or our beloved Nathan Drake in the video game world, or even a Batman, honestly, because Batman is sort of the comic book version of a treasure hunter in a lot of ways. I mean, he's not always hunting treasure, but his detective work is similar to the way that treasure hunters operate when they're seeking their big prize. And I just wondered how you felt this was as far as like a comparison between those two age groups. It's a fantastic comparison. I just finished Uncharted 3, which I've absolutely enjoyed the series so far. I'm really excited to get into the fourth one. This movie makes me more excited about the potential upcoming Uncharted movie with a young Nathan Drake. Knowing that it's not going to be a one-for-one comparison to Tintin, but having youth as a focal point, I think gives it a different flavor for an adventure story than we're used to with Nathan Drake, Batman, or even Indiana Jones. We have someone who is not seasoned, someone who is driven by curiosity, someone who is a little bit naive, but who also has the chops to figure things out. Early on, our first introduction to him is him walking through, I guess, this flea market, and he discovers this amazing ship. I wanted that ship, Aaron. In fact, I was sad when it broke, even though it had a clue in the broken piece. But there's three of them, so you're good. (laughs) Not after the movie. I think all of them were destroyed. That's true. But it starts with him wanting this ship because he finds a lot of curiosity to it. And then he only goes into more detail with its curiosity because of the fact that he was kind of prompted by that crazy American that came by and said, hey, you don't want this. So watching him go through this, there's always that risk of believability because of that youth. Hey, he's not Batman. He doesn't have this experience of being an archaeologist. He doesn't have that history. So there is that risk of believing, could he really figure this out? That's why I think the curiosity really is appealing, because in a lot of ways, it encourages the audience to follow along and say, no, it's behind there, or no, it could be that. And having a dog with him, who I know is not necessarily giving him clues, feels like he has a companion. He's able to be motivated by the fact that his dog Snowy goes with him everywhere I think that that youth really serves to make this story feel a lot more refreshing than your typical adventure film. I love adventure stories, and so I knew I was going to like this from the very beginning. But to put a person in there who has that curiosity, that naivety, who's not driven by legacy, not driven by history, not driven by anything else, but really more about just what's this going to do? What is this going to lead to? That's the curiosity that's in all of us, especially little kids. They're like, what would happen if I did this? That's the mentality that we get from Tintin. And I think it's really, really cool to see how that plays out. 
Yeah, he works as like a very good cipher for us because of that, what you're saying. There's right at the beginning, you know, somebody walks up to him and I love that. I love that the movie gets started immediately. It reminds me of a Uncharted video game or of Indiana Jones, right? Where we are thrown into the situation starting right off the bat and somebody comes up to him and says, you're about to get in a whole mess of danger. Get out while you can. Like, that's one of the first lines of dialogue in this whole movie. And you're like, what? Okay, we're just going to go there right away. And when Tintin sees the ship, his character is expressed to us so quickly because his his line is, what secrets do you hold? And that speaks to what you're talking about, where he is all about curiosity. And a journalist fits perfectly with that because he wants to get the story. He wants to find out what the truth is. And he's, he's, so he's naturally inquisitive in that way. And because of it, it gives him a different sensibility because he's not in it for the money, the fame, you know, the reward. He's not even in it to necessarily like Indiana Jones would be for certain things. He's not in it to preserve history himself. He is just in it to know the truth and then share that with the world um, and others. And I love that about him. It's, it's pure, I guess. And, and I think that's, what's great about this being that bridge for kids and adults in this type of genre is he has that purity to him where he's not got the, he's plucky, you know, and he's got ingenuity to him, but it's not in the same way that an older character might older characters are going to make some off color jokes here and there uh, that are usually going to be based in their experiences and their personality types. And Tintin hasn't quite reached that necessarily yet. He also doesn't have to use weapons in the same way. We do get a fun little moment with the gun, but it's him sort of a being a crack shot with his one bullet and then using the gun as a fake out. The thing that I find really neat is when he, you know, sets up Saccharin on the ship with the bottles uh, of wine and the corks and uses those to kind of set off this sort of like, almost like it sounds like a fireworks display or dynamite, right? Is used to where it fakes the guys into thinking that they're being shot at so that he can use that as a diversion. And so those sort of smart ways of using the environment definitely remind me of all of the things I love about this, but in a way that I feel is completely understandable by kids and not over the top with the danger. Even though the stakes are sort of there, they're never scary, scary, I guess is how I would, that sounds like a terrible way to word it, but that's how I would put it. Well, being the youth that he is, he gives his audience permission to take those kinds of chances. When you look at somebody like Nathan Drake or Indiana Jones, what you have is someone who has experience in using the things around him, but it's more rugged. It's more kind of rough around the edges where Tintin really kind of reinforced by the animation style. It's very round, very smooth, very much approachable. It would be difficult for someone to get to know Indiana Jones. And we get to see the professor side of him that kind of gives us that appeal and says, okay, yeah, you're a professor. You've got some clout there. 
Nathan Drake, I think, is another great example because we see him. He's always going to be in his adventure outfit, but there are times when he's in over his head, literally, figuratively, and so we can connect in that way. But in no way do I ever see myself as Indiana Jones or Nathan Drake. It's why it's fun to play that character in the video game or to watch that guy on the big screen. Tintin allows us to feel like we could be that person. And the fact that he essentially is sort of a scientist as well and being able to figure out how to use the things around him to get to an end goal. That's very much a detective thing like Batman does, except Batman wears a cowl and is very intimidating. Tintin is not intimidating. And in some ways that can be to his advantage because it's unexpected, the things that he does. Maybe to us as an audience, but also to the people that he interacts with for good or for bad. Yeah. Oh, totally agree. And, you know, like you're saying, he's not a physically fit specimen of athleticism. It's not like he's like a fat kid (laughs) running around either, you know? (laughs) So, I mean, I'm not like discounting the fact that he's probably in decent shape, but he's doing it with his brain and not his brawn. And even the smartest of adventurers have a physical fitness about them that allows them to escape because it, you know, it enhances the amount of situations you can get in that allows your character to get out of those things by using their physical stats and their athleticism. But like you tend to, doesn't have to do that hardly ever. Uh, and he also has a really cool catchphrase that I like. He says great snakes, which is, I don't like snakes, but I just like that he has a catchphrase. It's kind of like, it reminds me also of, you know, the fact that he's a child He's almost cursing, but not cursing, right? Is the way I see it. It's like he's like screaming this thing out where normal movies would be. That would be definitely curse words. But this is a kid's movie and this is a teenage character. And so we're going to say Great Snakes instead. Well, you mentioned legacy and you're right. So many adventures and explorers are obsessed with legacy and how they're going to be remembered or they're doing this because their ancestors did this thing and so they feel like they it's in their blood and they have to do this i'm wondering why we continually find this to be such a compelling storytelling device in general and more so than 1010 i think that this is shown to us in this movie through the villain and the sidekick or I guess you could call him a sidekick for most of the movie uh, through Captain Haddock, right? The histories of Haddock and Sacker and the villain definitely have been impacted by this legacy of their ancestors. And like, how has that gotten them to where they're at now? History is a powerful thing. And for a lot of people, Myself particularly, I can't speak for the world, but for myself in particular, I'm very intrigued about what's happened before and how it affects how things are going to be. And that's in any regard. But the other day I was looking at a map from one of these loot crate things, Kiwi boxes that my son got in the mail, and there's a legend on it. And one of the items that you can look for are shipwrecks around the world and there were obviously the titanic but there were several others 
think Queen Anne's Revenge, I think, off the coast of North Carolina. But there were three or four other shipwrecks that I had no idea about. And when I began to show them to my son, I said, hey, let's look those up. I was becoming fascinated with them. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I want to go watch the History Channel because I want to read and find out more about these shipwrecks. Because there's something intriguing, Aaron, about the past, about the fact that we have evidence, we have pieces, we have some tangibility to a world that existed prior to us. And when you look at that in story form, it's really cool to be able to connect dots to try to answer the why. Why is this person the way he is? Why does he want this so much? And so when you get that discovery, either because he has a long family history of that or because his family history has forced him to be something else, whatever that story is, it's a story that we connect with because I think as human beings, we like to know where we've come from. We like to know what our origins are, whether they're ethnic origins or cultural origins. We like to know how things started. The creation story is a fascinating story, whether or not you believe it from a faith-based standpoint, the way it's described is incredible because at one point you didn't have something and at another point you did and it started just happening and visualizing how this stuff comes to be. I think for human beings, it's very fascinating for human beings. It allows us to be able to say we do have a past. We do come from somewhere. And how does that shape us? And so when you see that played out in stories like this, I think it connects us to them. Maybe not specifically to them and their stories, but it connects us to them in a way that we understand that we have that as well. Yeah, I think that you're absolutely right. I am, and it, it can inspire us as well to want to be better or to be able to achieve something, even if that thing in Sakran's case is not something that we are supportive of or approve of because it's more of a villainistic reason. It's selfish. It's all about what he can have treasure wise and, and, uh, and such, but you know, he's still trying to achieve a goal that his ancestor achieved because it's going to make him feel like he has value. And, I think one of my favorite scenes in this whole movie almost was my connecting point, honestly, but visually it is probably my favorite moment is when they get to the desert and Haddock begins hallucinating about the past. And it's a beautiful scene animation wise, just when the ship on the stormy sea comes into the frame and starts to slowly overtake the desert and then Ultimately, it completely engulfs it, and we go into the vision part of the the scene. It is just absolutely gorgeous. But this is when he's remembering the story of the unicorn and his ancestor, Sir Francis. And you get to see these two ships. They're locked together with fiery masts and sword battles and, you know, ultimately the sinking of this attacking pirate ship and then Red Rackham appearing and this kind of one-on-one rivalry that was taking place, right? About, you know, who's going to win and how is, you know, Sir Francis, his his 
ancestor gives up the treasure to Rackham in order to save his men. So he's doing this thing that is very admirable. And I think having it revealed to us that way in this animated film is really cool and it's visually striking. And so it is something very memorable for me, but it really connected me to Haddock because until then he's sort of still the bumbling drunken character that's in a lot of stories that you're like, well, eventually this guy's going to have to sober up in order for them to achieve their goal. But it gives him so much more weight because now he's an invested part of this story. In fact, he's the one that has a purpose. Like Tintin's really just in it for the heck of it. Like he's just in it for the story. Haddock's in it because it actually matters to him about who his ancestor was and for his character and how he is going to be going forward. And so uh, I think it is super compelling and, it, and you're right. It is because it's all, we always want to know where we came from. It's why we do ancestry tests and try to figure out like our ancestors from Germany or England or Africa or where, where did we come from? What did our ancestors have to go through? Um, it gives us a sense of kind of belonging all the way, all the way back, right? To the beginning of time, essentially a being of creation. Uh, and so I think that it will always be that way. And I mean, even going in just, just back to like your dad, right? It's, it's fun to hear stories about what your parents went through and to want to live up to whatever their biggest achievements were. And in this is case, that's what these two characters are doing. Saccharin's ancestor was one of the biggest, baddest pirates out there. And so he wants to be able to continue that. With regards to both of these characters specifically, do you ever have any empathy for Saccharin, uh, who actually looks a lot like Spielberg, by the way? I found that interesting that he kind of used a lot of his own likeness in that character's animation. And then do you basically for Captain Haddock as well, like where do your feelings for these two characters lie over the course of the story? I look at both of them as being compelled to finish what their ancestors started to finish that story, to finish that rivalry, I guess you could call it. And yes, Saccharin is a spitting image of Spielberg, which was uncanny to me. I was like, why is Spielberg wanting to steal treasure? He could just make movies. Uh, anyway, I look at both of these characters as being compelled, but they're compelled by different reasons. I think Saccharin is a character who is trying to fulfill the legacy that his ancestors started. I think Haddock is compelled to try to change history because his ancestor basically gave up the gold and instead, but for the sake of wanting to save his men, I think Haddock in some ways was trying to redeem that ancestry Saccharin, I think, was just trying to finish the job that his ancestors were trying, were starting, which is get the gold and continue to be a great pirate. What's great, Aaron, is that I could see myself in both of their positions. That if my dad had a legacy that he 
passed on to me, whether by accident or design, there would be something in me that would either go saccharine's way and continue to fulfill it, even if I didn't want it, like owning a family business, even though I didn't want to do that, or by going the complete opposite route and doing everything I could to avoid it, to be the guy who, like Flynn's kid, basically just becomes a recluse and just just reckless and doesn't care about the business and is sort of forced into that. It's a similar story that we see in the hero's journey, a compulsion to have to go on this adventure, a compulsion to have to meet that goal and meet up in a final battle of sorts. Saccharin, I think, does the same thing. We just don't see his backstory as much because we don't see him have visions of what it was like from his ancestor's point of view. And I agree. I think that scene was probably one of the best filmed scenes in the entire movie. It was a fantastic sequence to watch. It's what really compelled me to put my one word takeaway being nonstop because it just kept coming and coming and coming. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know what's happening. I think it's a mirage. I think it's a dream. And even Carson was like, is he dreaming? I was like, I don't know. I think it's real or it's not. I don't know. But seeing these two characters do what they do, I don't know that I had empathy for Saccharin, but there were parts of me that understood him, even though I didn't agree with his motives or even how he actually executed those motives. Yeah, I, I definitely did not have any sort of empathy for him. I think once you run the route of you know, kidnapping and you start threatening people's lives and or killing people in order to get your way, I think really it was when he pushes Snowy and Haddock over uh, and to, to kill them in order to get the final scroll from Tintin. It's at that point when I'm like, okay, you're now kind of unredeemable. Up until this point, you've been a real annoyance and nuisance. And I've sort of understood that you feel you have this historical claim to this treasure. And essentially, it's been lost for all of this time. Haddock wasn't even looking for it. So what's the big deal if you get it? So be it. But like when you start sacrificing others in order to do that, it becomes too much for me to take. And so I definitely did not have any empathy really for him. I don't think that the comic strip is, I mean, maybe I haven't read it, but I would imagine that it's hard to give a villain like him a ton of depth. And I mean, that, that really elevates a story, right? When your villain is actually empathetic, it, it takes a lot more development. And this is more about the adventure. And it's hard to do those things together without a longer runtime and without slowing it down and giving us more dramatic bits. And that's not what this is about. So it doesn't bother me at all, but I definitely am totally fine when he gets captured and no worries about that whatsoever. Um, I, I love Haddock's journey and I think it's an interesting way in which he sort of becomes involved in this just by chance, you know, by chance of who he is, because when we meet him, he's just a drunken captain of a ship and he's there because Saccharin feels like he needs him because the legend says that only a haddock can do this thing. 
if Sakran had never gone looking for this treasure, Patrick, this man would have been a drunken sea captain for the rest of his life, essentially, is the way that I look at it. And so are you, you're giving me eyes like maybe you disagree. No, no, I agree. I think oh. that he probably would have and would have been completely fine with that. That's what's the interesting thing is that exactly he found meaning purpose. Yeah. And that's not something that he would have found had he not been thrown into this. Right. And then ultimately, it's a great story for him because his purpose that he ends up having is one that involves other people and one that involves a feeling of value instead of a feeling of a lack of self-worth, which is what he had before. And something else that I noticed was that my one more takeaway jokingly was originally going to be alcohol because there was so much in here. But the story did not center around him recovering from alcoholism. By the end of the movie, he was still toasting that he found a treasure. He drinks both glasses of champagne or whatever it is that he's sharing with Tintin. But I feel like in some ways the story is saying that finding purpose allows you to focus less on the things that you're trying to fill that void with without necessarily being overly preachy and saying you don't need alcohol to live a full life. I think we kind of infer that, but I like the fact that that didn't become a focal point that he was told, he was never told you need to stop drinking. I mean, he was, but that was never the thing that he was trying to overcome. It was, I need to find something that's going to give my life meaning. And it was thrown at me and I have to either accept it and live in it or live this other life that I've lived that's comfortable and meaningless. Absolutely. And I think that there's the a beautiful redeeming moment that shows us that in the film where he's fighting Rackham at the end and he pushes Rackham overboard. And then before that, he, or sorry, before he, while he's fighting Rackham at the end, he finds this bottle of whiskey, right? His last bottle, it seems. And We've seen him over the course of the movie in these similar situations where he will drink it, specifically like when they're about to escape the ship, he goes to the alcohol to drink the alcohol versus using it for any other purpose. But this 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 time he throws it and he uses it as a distraction, is able to beat Rackham because of that. And then after that moment, we see the whiskey bottle on the ground and he gleefully victoriously triumphantly kicks it over the side and it's not overdone it's not over focused on we don't go into some slow motion or the score doesn't change to become this big swelling emotional moment it's just a quick shot to tell us he beat his addiction in this moment and it was able to allow him to succeed and he succeeded by even turning his addiction into something that could fight for the a positive you know end result and so I love that about him. And I love that we get to see him to where I believe that going forward, he can use alcohol responsibly. Like you're saying, it's not about not necessarily doing it. It's about doing it in a way that isn't going to control your life. Um, and it does it so subtly and so well uh, through the storytelling. Well, other reasons, uh, other things that take place in this family friendly film are film are a ton of high stakes, but and there's even murder, shockingly. Somebody at Ten Ten's door gets uh, gunned down, sadly. I wondered, for you, did the action ever feel too serious? Or was it a pretty, you know, f would it stay fun 
if you imagine like you're watching it through a child's eyes, does it ever elevate to the point of, uh oh, you know, maybe this is a little bit of a scary moment and I need to like pull my son away from this specific section? I'm not going to lie. There were definitely parts of it that I kind of raised an eyebrow out of saying, wow, this is pretty over the top. I mean, there was a lot of fire and explosions and stuff, which my son's used to. He watches Power Rangers. He watches Ninja Turtles. Things like that are not necessarily surprising. But that moment we get where Tintin pulls out the gun and shoots and we see that guy get shot early on in the movie. I was a little bit surprised at that because of the fact that it wasn't expected but I liked how it was handled. We didn't see this guy bleeding out. <laughs> we saw him shot. We inferred that he was dying, that, that he was shot somewhere on his body. And I think that Tintin as a whole needed that in order to create some of those heavier stakes. Otherwise, it would have come across as kind of a hokey adventure story. I think that's why Tintin as a character works so well as a side character. Like he's, he's who we are. I mean, we, we were represented in him. And as the narrative shifts towards Haddock and Saccharin, we take a back seat to that. I mean, yes, Tintin has a part to play in the story, but I think he provides that levity because of his youth. And I think it felt really balanced. I didn't mind it. Obviously being an adult, I thought it was actually necessary it made it more compelling i probably need to ask my son what did you think of Tintin? did it seem were there parts that were scary were there parts that you kind of were fearful about i honestly didn't pick that up from him because one he was a little bit distracted with some other things and two by today's standards this feels pretty tame so overall yes i think for an animated movie this was unexpected but not to the level that I would think, mm, this isn't something I want my child watching. Yeah, me either. And I think anything that was a little bit adult in nature with guns or the fear of death was handled pretty quickly and pretty... The animation was done, like the sword fighting and the ships and such. It was never a focal point on killing right never zooming in we're not doing like tarantino shots here with body parts flying off on the animated sequence or anything um it kept it kind of fun and just on the outskirts i guess of the story it actually reminded me a lot of what stilberg does later on in ready player one in his animated version of that because there's some gun stuff going on in that one too and there's some actual dangerous situations but they're done in a way that i think create a sense of peril without putting it into a fearful state for a younger viewer to be watching. And I think it's also because it, it just follows the formula of globe trotting and you're constantly bouncing from one place to another. You're in a European location and then you're on a ship and you're going through the oceans and then you have to get on a seaplane and, you know, Tintin has to teach himself how to fly. He's like, I, I took a class on this once. I love that. And then he flies and they go through the air and then we're in the deserts, you know, and then we've got all of these big action moments. And of course, it all brings you back home 
in this story. And so it feels very, very, very comparable to Spielberg's work on Indiana Jones as well. Uh, and, and speaking of, you know, things that are comparable in animation, how do you think that the motion capture enhanced this? Or do you think that it suffers at all versus what we would get in this type of story live action? And we have Spielberg to completely, you know, compare to. And then we also have Ready Player One, which is a later version of sort of what we have here. Different setting, but very similar as far as the adventure goes. Yeah, I think the first thing I thought was this is the Polar Express, only not as weird. <laughs> and I'm a I'm a fan of of the Polar Express. I know that there are those out there that think that animation style is just weird and creepy, and I can understand that. But I think it's also about the setting. That world is very much fantastical. It's very much about magic and fantasy and things like that. Whereas Tintin is familiar we know these places that they go well not maybe personally but these are real places that they go they're not venturing off into some fantasy world where they're going to be you know flying with wings on their backs and things like that so as a whole i felt like when you have source material that's a comic strip this makes perfect sense this makes a lot of sense to move to this type of animation what i was a little disappointed in aaron was i absolutely fell in love with the credit sequence and I thought, I could see a whole movie done this way. So not that I think that Spielberg made a bad decision, but I would not have minded seeing that 2D animation style used throughout the movie. But at the same time, as I mentioned before, the more serious parts of the movie, the explosions and the gunplay and to an extent some of the alcoholism, I think that stuff would have been less impactful, less meaningful if you'd had it in a 2D cartoony style because it didn't feel, quote, real. Adventure stories can feel animated, but when you add that flat 2D animation to your narrative, you risk some of the more dramatic stuff that could happen with it. I think that's why Pixar is successful because a lot of their CG is three-dimensional. It feels like you could live in that world, even with these non-living characters like Woody and Buzz that are toys and things like that. So Tintin, the animation style worked for me because I think it helped reinforce the kind of seriousness as much or as little as it was of the narrative. Yeah, totally works for me as well. I also really enjoyed that credit sequence. I wrote down a note early on that was like, man, this is gorgeous. And the, the way that all of the human characters are shadowy and snowy is just this little white blob in all of those. He sticks out. It's really striking. The difference. It, it reminded me of something like almost like a Dick Tracy is what I was thinking of color palette wise while we were watching that. And I, I mean, I would have liked to watch that as well, but I think it works really great as a credit sequence. It's just a perfect start to what you're going to get here. And I, don't have any problems at all with the animation of the characters and them being CGI. I know that when this came out, that's one of the bigger problems that some people had with it and complaints. They thought it was a little too uncanny Valley doesn't affect me at all. I actually like it quite a bit. I think that like you said, it gives it a more realistic feel to me. And probably this is because I've played so many video games. And honestly, 
they're very similar in a lot of ways. Video games like this, big blockbuster action narrative storytelling games like a God of War or like an Uncharted 4 are using motion capture as well for most of their stuff. So not only do we get the incredible action set pieces in this movie that are so cinematic, they play like a video game cutscene. Patrick, Uncharted 4 specifically comes to mind, which you haven't played yet, but there is a sequence that feels like it is directly out of an Uncharted game, and that is in Milan when they this tank is coming after them and they are going through the streets and the camera is spinning around the action and it's so immersive and so engaging and it's sticking on 1010 from all these different angles and this tank ends up carrying a building down the street chasing them and they're in this two-seat motorcycle and snowy is simultaneously coming in and out of the frame chasing the falcon that has you know the scroll in its claw and it, it just fe- felt like a movie right and they're bursting through uh, and undoing a jump down these streets and they're having to jump and hang. He's having to hang on to a cloth, a clothespin line or something to get a little bit of a boost. Those are things that you see in a video game that you don't usually see in live action because they're not quite realistic, right? They're a little bit over the top, but it's like borderline to where you're like, Oh man, that feels sort of like it could happen. It, it wouldn't really happen, but it could sort of happen. And so you get invested in that. And I think because of the CGI and the motion capture, the characters and their expressiveness and the way that their faces feel like you're looking at real humans, it makes all of that that more compelling and that more like you care about what's going to happen to them. And it gives it just it's the perfect balance, like I say, between non-realistic action and yet oh yeah maybe real people could actually do this so uh i think it it works out perfectly in my opinion and i'm really pleased with the choice yeah you can definitely sell that when it comes to those types of action set pieces in any kind of story and you're right it is why video games work because we already suspend our disbelief there's no way when i watch nathan drake scale across a wall with his grip strength that is just incredible am i thinking oh man he's going to be tired here in a minute sure enough if i just leave him here he's probably going to fall off no he's not why because i'm playing a freaking video game and even if i wasn't i would continue to suspend my disbelief because he's not real if you had indiana jones or batman sitting on that same ledge doing the same thing at some point we're going to go no way he can stay there for 10 minutes no way he can scale this 15 story building grabbing onto small pebbles on the wall no animation and mocap animation specifically whether it's in a video game or movie sells that suspension of disbelief for us and i think it enhances our enjoyment of something because we're not criticizing those things as we would in something like, look, the Fast and the Furious. Let's just take it for what it is. That's if great. you put the Fast and the Furious in a mocap suit, you wrapped it up in CG and put it in an animation sequence, you'd probably get a lot less criticism for the believability of those things. 
And it's what I think we enjoy is the fact that you have creators that take those kinds of risks and they say, look, we know that these things could not happen, but we don't care because the spirit of those movies allows for that suspension of disbelief. It's the same thing with the Mission Impossible movies. Half the stuff that Ethan Hunt's team uses in terms of technology probably doesn't exist, or maybe it exists on the fringe parts of technology, but we don't care. Why? Because we enjoy seeing how he uses it. We enjoy seeing how the team uses those things. And for a movie like Tintin, we're enjoying seeing how that all plays out. We, I, I thought that whole sequence where Tintin uses the motorcycle that eventually just breaks and breaks and breaks, and now he's just hanging on a couple of uh, a set of handlebars to zip line down this thing and then eventually grabs onto like a balloon or something. I love that. Would it happen in real life? Absolutely not. Do I care? No. And it's reinforced by the fact that he's not real, that he's not a live action character, but he's mocapped and that you can do more things in an animation world that you couldn't do in live action. Yeah, it just it's a balance. It's a balance of knowing he's not real because he's animated, but making your brain enjoy the fact that he looks sort of real. <laughs> and so maybe he could do that. It's It's a fun thing to let your mind wander through. Well, while promoting Ready Player One in early 2018, Spielberg actually offered an update on the possibility of 1010 being made. He said that Peter Jackson had agreed to direct the second part, which is awesome, and that normally if all went well, he would start working on the script. He said it's going to take a couple of years of animation and so we probably wouldn't see the film for about three years, but that Peter is excited about it and Tintin is not dead. So my question for you is twofold. One, do you think that Tintin is good enough as a standalone movie that if we never got this sequel or any more, it would still be just a great adventure movie? Or do you think that it's left off in a place where characters are not developed well enough to completely sell them and you really need it to be a series in order to fully appreciate it. And the second question is, do you want this sequel? Do you want more of this? I'm guessing you already answered this early on, but you can tell me again. I ended my experience with this movie feeling almost the exact same way that I felt after National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets. There is such a tease for a sequel, for a follow-up, that I wanted it so bad. And I was disappointed because the moment that I finished it, I was like, okay, where's 10, 10, 2? Oh, wait, 2011. Oh, my gosh. Yep, development hell. It's never coming. It's the Half-Life 3 of motion pictures. I mean, this is what I felt like. And I was disappointed, but it wasn't in the fact that this story didn't feel complete because it did. It's the way it left and the way we put ourselves in this position of saying, oh, they're going on another adventure and yet we're just going to have to imagine it at this point. If the ending hadn't happened the way it did, if they had just toasted and they had said, wait, there's a map here and they hadn't left the room then 
I could have probably been okay with that because I think that the movie itself stands on its own. I think it's a great adventure story. And I think that it's fine by itself, but you leave us with just enough that we know that there was an idea of a sequel. But it wasn't like how I felt after leaving Alita Battle Angel where a movie felt self-contained and then forces the possibility of a sequel at the very end. This felt like it was naturally like, yep, the adventure's not over. We're moving on to the next one. I want to know more about Haddock. I want to know more about how he and Tintin are going to work together. One's a journalist and one's a pirate captain or a, a sea captain. How is that going to work? But it was really more a disappointment from curiosity more than it was feeling like the story was incomplete. I definitely don't think it's incomplete at all. And I am completely content in a sense with what we have here. I think it is a fantastic film by itself. It reminds me of the pirates of the Caribbean, not only in tone, but the way that that movie ends, we've had characters who have met each other over the course of an adventure. They have changed and they have new potential for more stories and more adventures together because there's more out there. There's more treasure to be found. There's more mysteries to be solved. And yet, even if we never get to see them, I think that it is an enhancement to the story to kind of know that that's where the characters are going to go if that makes sense. So we expect that Captain Jack Sparrow and Will and Elizabeth are going to go off and do more things, probably. We expect that Tintin and Captain Haddock are going to go after this treasure. So while I very much want to see that happen, and I think that it would be very enjoyable, it's actually part of my enjoyment of this movie to know that that's their future, that they're going to go do that. And that even if I don't get to see it on screen, my final moments with these characters is knowing that they have formed this bond and they have a direction and that they're going to go out and have a cool adventure. And that's awesome to me because that's who they are now. And it's exciting. And so it works perfectly for me. And I'm at the same time, I'm super hyped. And I am excited that Patrick, Patrick, that Peter Jackson is the one that is going to be directing this. I think that that's a phenomenal choice. And especially knowing that he helped produce the first one, of course. So he's been a part of this franchise or series. He, he knows what is expected. Spielberg trusts him and bring it on, man. I would watch, you know, an endless number of these adventures, to be honest. So I will take any and everything I can get in the Tintin animated universe every film has at least one connecting point patrick and we are at that point of the show where it's time to share ours and surprise surprise we have come up with the same one yay us i don't know if that's our good that's audience perfect. okay good deal. i like it well i'm gonna let you go first and kick us off since this was your first time viewing what is our connecting point well, it's definitely the pep talk after losing the third scroll. This, to me, was the turning point in the movie, and it's pretty obvious. I think it's the moment that both Haddock and Tintin come together as a team. I think both of them have been working together, but not necessarily for the same goal. They've both been kind of motivated by different things, and there's this 
conversation that Haddock has with Tintin where he basically says, no, we're not going to stop. We're going to do this. It's completely different than what we expect Haddock that we've known before. And I love the fact that we're getting this turn. We're getting these two characters that early on in the film, we expect to be a certain way because of how we've been introduced to them. We have Tintin, who's the optimist, who's the adventurer, who's like, I am looking for the story. Haddock's like, leave me alone with my whiskey. I'm fine. And now we get to a point in the movie where Haddock is saying, no, let's get off our butts and let's go get that treasure. I love the fact that what we see here is Haddock's turn. We see him for the first time, I think, really motivated by something beyond self-interest. He really wants to fulfill this destiny, this goal that he's been thrust upon, but that has also allowed him to say, I'm in control of this for the first time. I have been avoiding it for whatever reason, and now I have a chance to do this. And it's him that motivates Tintin to go after this treasure and to get it and to eventually defeat the bad guy and get us to that great third act where we enjoy this culmination of all that. So for me, I think this was a great turning point. I think it was a very obvious turning point. Didn't need to sugarcoat. And I like the fact that the conversation was from opposite points of view. It was unexpected. Yeah, I, Agree with all of that, you know, and I, I just kind of want to read over real quick just the dialogue because it's so good. And it's like you said, it's very motivational in nature because Tintin is sitting there dejected. He says it's over. And Haddock says, I thought you were an optimist. And Tintin says, well, you were wrong, weren't you? I'm a realist, which is something that I like to say myself. And Haddock said, that's just another name for a quitter. And I was like, oh, ooh, burn, right? And then Tintin says, you can call me whatever you like. Don't you get it? We failed. And then he, the, the big part of this speech is Haddock saying, failed? There are plenty of others willing to call you a failure, a fool, a loser, a hopeless souse. Don't you ever say it of yourself. You send the wrong signal. That is what people pick up. Do you understand? You care about something. You fight for it. You hit a wall. You push through it. There's something you need to know about failure, Tintin. You can never let it defeat you. It is awesome. And I think that one of the most important things this movie lets us see and that is accentuated by this speech is that the best adventurers are not always successful, Patrick. Whether it's Indiana Jones or Nathan Drake or Batman or whoever we're talking about, they almost always, quote unquote, fail. They fall short. They don't win or get to their goals. And what makes their stories and their characters interesting is their failures. And it's their determination to never give up, no matter what the odds are, no matter how much it seems like it's over. It's that these people push through because they are so determined to reach these goals. And they have a drive and they don't stop. And I think that this scene is indicative of that. And it's the one where Tintin has been this rock for the entire movie. 
he needs a moment of inspiration. And so it comes from this unlikely source, of course, which is moving to the viewer. And it's a moment when usually the unreliable sidekick does this. They He's speaking from personal experience to motivate the hero. And it's great. And I think that it's doubly cool that they storytelling wise used this speech to have it trigger this thought from Tintin that not only is it motivating for him in general, but it helps him think about where maybe Saccharin might have gone. And so it progresses the story that way. And then the last part of what makes it so amazing is that it comes back around in the end when they have one and when they have returned to Marlin Spike Manor, which is pretty awesome that we get all the way back to this starting point, right? And they're searching for this treasure and they find the secret cellar, right? With it, with the second room that, that it's in. And Tintin says, it's a great shot. It's framed beautifully. It's got them side by side looking at each other on the screen. So we get to see them both actually speak to each other. And Tintin says, just like you said, Captain, you hit a wall. And Caddick says, you push through it. And then boom, they push through this broken wall. There's the treasure. It is beautiful. It's so well tied together. It's great storytelling. It's emotional. I think that's why we love it. And uh, I'm definitely glad that it was your connecting point as well. Yeah, I think it creates some equality with them, too. It puts them both on a level playing field where you at one point would think, oh, Tintin's got this kind of higher quality, this higher credibility because he's sober, because he's smart. Haddock's just this drunk captain. And that moment, I think, levels the playing field because Haddock is able to be something for Tintin that he needs in that moment. And that it's unexpected, I think, just adds to it. Well, that wraps up another episode of Feelin' Film. Seeing as how a lot of us are hanging out in that shelter-in-place mode right now, we have a bit more flexibility in the movie schedule and wanted to focus more on films that you have access to. So our next several weeks will be covering stuff that is either streaming or on-demand, starting with a fan favorite of ours, Rounders, and that's going to be on Netflix. So you'll want to check that out if you haven't seen it and enjoy the conversation because I know that we're going to enjoy it as well. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, my friend. We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.